<laughs> right, people. Uh, I was um, interested to see. Is this working? This uh, is that working? Not really. <laughs> yes. Yes. How's that? Is that any better? Is that any different? Not the slightest. Hmm. Oh, possibly I didn't switch it on. That could explain it. Now it'll be different. There we go. There we go. Go back to where it was. And um, I'm going to read I, some interesting suggestions from people as to other passages about, the, about um, women in their position and their role that might have been included in the list. Uh, and so I'm going to read one of the ones that somebody suggested, um, John chapter 4. So listen to this one and uh, see what it says to you. John chapter 4, beginning at verse 5. Jesus came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well, and his sons, and with his sons and his flocks, drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty. I have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. 
When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said, what do you want, or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Surely no one has brought him something to eat. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Do you not say, Four months more, then comes the harvest? But I tell you, Look around you and see how the fields are ripe for harvesting. The reaper is already receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I send you to reap for that which you do not labour. Others have laboured and you have entered into that labour. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I, ever, I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Saviour of the world. Things about that story that strike you? <coughs> mm-hmm. I've always thought that the woman must have felt how I've heard it before is that the woman must have felt ashamed that mm. she knew everything mm. that she did, but mm. the way I heard it this time was how amazing mm. yeah. Which is a huge um, thing for us, isn't it, in the sense that most of us have got inside us things that we'd be ashamed for other people in the classroom to know um, and uh, would like to think that God doesn't know them. <laughs> but the trouble is when we think about it, we know that God can know them. Uh, and then what the story then says is Jesus can know them and it doesn't matter. It's all right for God to know all about us. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yes. Um, well. Yes, he, he, yeah, he doesn't quite, he doesn't actually use the phrase, I am the Messiah, I don't think, does he? She says, 
when the Messiah comes, well, more or less does, yeah, when he comes, he'll proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he. Um, it, it's um, Usually he avoids Messiah talk because it's misleading, um, because the kind of expectations that um, people like, uh, that, that the disciples and other people would have had about being the Messiah weren't actually a helpful way for them to come to understand who he was about. Um, but evidently, in this context, he thinks he can take the risk. Mm-hmm. Well, all all that would be as a Samarit the Samaritans. Um, Oh, this will lead neatly into the lecture anyway. Uh, I'll work it in somehow. Uh, a key difference between the Samaritans and the Jews was the Samaritans only accepted the Pentateuch as the word of God. Um, that was why when, when the, the Samaritans challenged... Uh, when this, oh, no, like the Sadducees, which is why when, Jesus, when the Sadducees challenged Jesus about the resurrection, he has to, as it were, prove it from the, from the Pentateuch, from the books of Moses. The, Sadducees, the Samaritans were the same. So... Uh, she would no, probably know the Pentateuch rather better um, than... Well, yes, Samaritans would spend more time studying the Pentateuch proportionately because they haven't got to read the other books. Um, it's like Christians read the New Testament and don't read the Old Testament because... Oh, never mind, that's it, yeah. Um, so she'd know about Jacob from the, from the Pentateuch story. Um, and, of course, they are standing at this... Uh, place that is Jacob's well um, and uh, it would be part of Samaritan um, I mean we, we're familiar with the way that the Jews didn't, were inclined to um, kind of excommunicate the Samaritans and the Samaritans would do the same to Jews you know just like Christian they're like Christian denominations you know um, and uh, so for, this, for, the, for the woman to, say, to talk about Jacob as our ancestor is to affirm, he's not just your ancestor, you know, he's our ancestor as well. Is that the sort of thing you mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. And the image is a much more um, powerful one uh, in that culture. You have to imagine uh, the situation as it would have been in Los Angeles 100 years ago um, when there is no uh, um, transporting of water from the Colorado River and uh, Edwards Dam, uh, Edwards River and that kind of thing. Um, and, and when the streams dry up in the summer um, and the idea of there being plentiful running water uh, is is an extraordinary one for them, as it would have been for us here a hundred years ago. And so then to talk about living water, running water, is a very powerful image. And so then to apply that to what Christ done for us, does for us is the more powerful. Um, yeah. I often uh, think that um, if you come from um, if you come from uh, from Britain and from some parts of the U.S. Um, you can take rain for granted 
you can't take sun for granted. Uh, here and in the Middle East, it's the other way around. And so I, for most of my life, have had to turn the imagery in the scriptures upside down. Instead of the sun being a danger of being bad news, the sun is lovely and it's good news. Instead of water being something that's a big deal and big news, it's just something that um, in, in Europe you could take for granted. Uh, and so um, I think of the warmth of the sun as a bit like the living water image because I know how lovely it is to sit in the warmth of the sun. Um, and even, well actually, yes, even... Yesterday, when we went to Malibu and had lunch and sat in the warmth of the sun and looked at this, and that's the kind, looked at the living water going pounding. Um, that's the, those are the kind of images that Jesus would pick up in our culture. Okay, let's sing. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, let me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord, lead me on. When my way grows drear, precious Lord, linger near. When my life is almost gone, hear my cry, hear my call, hold my hand lest I fall. Take my hand, precious Lord, Lead me on. When the darkness appears and the night draws near and the day is past and gone, at the river I stand, guide my feet, hold my hand, take my hand. Precious Lord, lead me on. Gracious God, we thank you for the way that, metaphorically speaking, Jesus took that woman's hand and led her on. That as she was living a life that in many ways was one that was dominated by darkness and night rather than by light. Uh, and by storm rather than by calm. That you took her hand uh, and that you brought light into her life and living water. And we ask that you will do that for us where we need it. And we ask for your presence with us this evening so that our study of the scriptures may more open us up to having that happen to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so, in the first half tonight, I'm going to talk about... Uh, how and why the books that we've got in the Bible are the books that we've got in the Bible. And in the second half, we'll come to the way that Scripture talks about uh, women. So, page 38, where it says at the top, the canon of Scripture. 
Um, there was once an Archbishop of Canterbury, the head of the, um, uh, the Church of England, um, who uh, used to say that um, the scriptures, and he had a funny voice, so that's why I say this in a minute, in a funny voice, um, who used to say that the Bible didn't fall from heaven, some copies with the Apocrypha and some without. Um, the, the process whereby the Bible came to be the Bible uh, was a historical process, a gradual one, one that involved human activity. Um, there was never a point at which to go back to Malibu, as it were. There was a plane that went across the sky with one of those uh, message things uh, at the back that said, Genesis, Exodus, you know, all the way through. Don't believe the Apocrypha. Do believe the Apocrypha. Um, I don't know. Leave out, well, 2 Timothy or whatever it was that we read for today. Obviously, that's what we would like to have the message uh, written on the back of. There was never something like that that happened. Uh, the process whereby the, the, the canon of Scripture, the list uh, of books that came to be Scripture, came to be what they were, was historical in the same way as the books coming into existence was historical, human, gradual. That doesn't mean there was anything wrong with it. Just as uh, I've suggested that when Luke wrote his gospel, because he thought it was a good idea, uh, in a very human sort of way, the way that you write a paper, that doesn't mean there was anything wrong with his gospel. Uh, evidently God looked at it and thought, that's okay, I'll have that in my book. But the process whereby Luke came into existence uh, was a human and historical one. Uh, and likewise, the process whereby uh, the canon of the Old Testament scriptures and the canon of the New, script, New Testament scriptures came into existence was a historical uh, and human one. Um, I say that despite the fact that uh, I should confess to you that we have very little evidence uh, of the process whereby, in fact, no, to be honest, no evidence for the process whereby the Old Testament books uh, came to be the Old Testament books. So what I say about that will be uh, fairly short uh, though we have lots of evidence uh, for the process whereby the New Testament came uh, to be the New Testament, where, where, how, these, how these books came to be the New Testament books. Uh, and and kind of, really it would be nice if there was a bit more evidence for the Old Testament, a bit less evidence for the New Testament, because then it would be less complicated. But, you know, you can't choose the data that you have to handle, um, as I'm sure, uh, well, I suppose you do choose the data you have to handle uh, in your discipline, don't you? But... Um, in theology, you can't choose the data you have to handle. What you can see within the Old Testament is uh, the kind of process that went on you, that you can at least plausible, plausibly reckon would be the process that generate, that issued eventually in there being a collection of books that the community regarded as the scriptures, which is the collection that we've got. Uh, for instance, the passages that I've listed at the top of the um, page there uh, first, Exodus 19 to 24 is the account of how at Sinai uh, the, the uh, Israelites were given the book of the covenant. Uh, and, uh, and God said, will you do what it says in this then? And they said, okay. And God said, fine chance. If God was wise anyway, which God was. But God nevertheless um, uh, went through the process because God always lives in hope. Um, God always trusts us. God's always looking for um, the best from us. Um, now, if there, were, there was a document or whatever point, a book like the thing called the Book of the Covenant that appears in Exodus 19 to 24 uh, came to be uh, authoritative for the community, came to be something that they would have accepted, then obviously they hold on to it. That becomes, if you like, 
the nucleus, the beginning of an Old Testament canon. Um, the, and you can see it functioning in that kind of way in this sense. Uh, the word canon uh, is a simple transliteration of, the, of a Greek word, kanon, um, which means a ruler. Uh, and that uh, tells you one important function that a canon of scriptures has. That is, the scriptures are something that you measure yourself by. That's why we're in big trouble for the second half of this evening. Because when we find ourselves called to measure the, the attitudes we take to things by a book that says a load of things, well, at least a few things, uh, that, that we think can't be right, that's when we're in trouble. Because this is supposed to be the ruler. And the process whereby it comes to be the scriptures is a process whereby it comes to be the ruler with which the Israelite community measures itself. So you can see that with regard to the nucleus um, of the Pentateuch uh, instructions in Exodus 19 to 24. You can see um, another stage in this process in 2 Kings 23, um, which is an account of a reform by King Josiah. Um, and if you've never heard of him, uh, He's one of the two or three really good guys uh, amongst the Old Testament kings. You know that the Old Testament kings were usually bad guys, right? But just occasionally, and uh, there was a really good guy, and, and Josiah was one of them. Um, and, um, and as it says at the beginning of his story in 2 Kings 22, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he walked in all the way of his father David. Well, that begs a question or three in itself. Um, he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. What a terrific um, description to have. He kept straight on the right road. And a key way in which he did that um, arose out of when they were doing some remodeling in the temple. Um, and behind the central heating system or the air conditioning system, according to which part of the country you live in, uh, they found a scroll. Um, and uh, they read it, uh, and decided, we better show this to the king. Um, and uh, the king therefore read it, uh, and um, it scared the pants off him as well. Uh, and so he sent, uh, interestingly, uh, to a woman prophet called Huldah to ask her what to do. They, uh, the king sent the priest Hilkiah, Ahikam, Akbor, Shaphan, and Isaiah, went to the prophetess Huldah, the wife of Shalom, son of Tikvah, son of Hahas, keeper of the wardrobe. She resided in Jerusalem in the second quarter, where they consulted her. And she declared to them, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says Yahweh, I will indeed bring disaster on this place and on its inhabitants. All the words of the book that the king of Judah has read. Um, and uh, they take the message from this woman prophet back to the king, uh, who then assembles everybody um, and reads this book of the covenant, as it's called, um, to uh, the community. Uh, verses 2 and 3 of chapter 23. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the, in the house of Yahweh. The king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before Yahweh to follow Yahweh, keeping his commandments, his decrees, and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. Um, and the 
The rest of the chapter tells you some of the things that they did as a result of that. And if you compare what it says that, jo- uh, that Josiah did with what it says in the different books of the Pentateuch, it suggests that uh, it was something like uh, what we call Deuteronomy was the scroll that they found uh, in the temple. Because the kind of thing that, that the king does and the kind of warnings that are attached to ignoring this book are the kind of things that Deuteronomy says you should do or shouldn't do. Uh, and, uh, and, the, and, and Deuteronomy ends up with terrible warnings about what will follow if you don't keep the words of this book. At this point, this is the point at which the book of Deuteronomy comes to have a big effect, to be ruling, to be canonical, if you like, in the community. Another stage of this historical process. Uh, and then thirdly, a third kind of stage after the exile uh, in the story of Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah chapters 8 to 10. Um, it's in the book of Nehemiah, but the person who's doing the work here uh, is Ezra, who uh, appears in Nehemiah's book as well as his own book. And Nehemiah chapters 8 to 10 tell you how they told the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the Torah of Moses, which Yahweh had given to Israel. This was a book that the book of Ezra tells us. Ezra himself had brought back uh, from the exile from Babylon uh, in order to see that it got implemented in the community in Jerusalem. Um, And so uh, Ezra has done that, has brought the book, and he now reads it before the people. Uh, Read read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And these um, chapters recount again, a bit like Deuteronomy 23, how people responded to uh, what they found uh, and how they made covenant with God to do what this book said. Now, when you look at the kind of material that, uh, the kind of things that um, Ezra and Nehemiah talk about, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah do, the kind of things that the books of Ezra and Nehemiah talk about, uh, at least as much it looks as if they knew Leviticus as they knew Deuteronomy uh, and Exodus. So this looks like the point at which what we call the books of Moses, the Pentateuch as a whole, come to have some purchase, become, if you like, canonical uh, in the life of the community. We can sen- see in the story, at least we can, if we're putting two and two together and making four, if we're connecting the dots um, and they're not too far away from each other, a process whereby um, the uh, Pentateuch in particular comes to be canonical for the community. We can only guess at the process whereby the, the broader Old Testament story comes to be canonical and the prophecies come to be canonical. I presume a key thing is um, that uh, when prophecies get fulfilled, um, the people in the community say, wow, that must have been a word from the Lord. Quick, write it down. Put it in a book. Let's have a copy of those prophecies of Jeremiah or Isaiah or whoever. When you were a prophet and your words didn't get fulfilled, um, that uh, wouldn't, wouldn't be happening. You'd, that would imply you weren't a true prophet. But when you declared God's word and it came true, um, then people would want to keep hold of it. And I imagine that's the kind of process that led to the um, prophets, the, the books of the prophets coming to be uh, canonical. There are several references in the Apocrypha to uh, the books that people had in their day. And being stupid, I failed to bring my... Oh, I've got my Apocrypha. I thought it was a Bible without the Apocrypha. It's all right, I'll be able to read it. Um, 
the books of Maccabees um, are accounts of uh, the great deliverance that the community experienced from the uh, forces of uh, the Seleucid, the Greek Empire, that sought to terminate uh, their um, worship of Yahweh in the second century, um, when these Greek, uh, when the Greek Empire established uh, in the Temple what's referred to in the Book of Daniel as the the original abomination of desolation. Uh, but God gave them uh, an amazing victory over these uh, foreign forces, and they were able to see them off. Um, and the books of Maccabees, the Old Testament doesn't tell you that story. It only gives you the visions in Daniel that, um, uh, look, that, that refer to it. The story you have to read the Apocrypha for um, uh, in, in the books of Maccabees. And the passage in um, Maccabees chapter 2 refers uh, to the way in which a library had been been founded um, in Jerusalem where was collected the books about the kings and prophets and the writings of David and the letters of kings about votive offerings. In the same way Judas, one of the leaders in this community at the time, collected all the books that had been lost on account of the war that had come upon us. That's that crisis I was just talking about. And they are in our possession. So if you have need of them, uh, send people to get them for you. Now, uh, it seems to me a plausible view that that's um, indicating the presence in Jerusalem of of a collection of scriptures that the community accepted that included um, laws uh, of Moses, memoirs of Nehemiah, it says, uh, books about the kings and prophets, writings of David, um, and so on, which covers much of what we refer to um, as the Old Testament. It wouldn't surprise me then if they've got a collection, something like um, what we have in our Old Testament at that point in the story. Uh, in the book of Ecclesiasticus, um, uh, it begins, the book of Ecclesiasticus begins by saying, Many great teachings have been given to us through the law and the prophets and the others that followed them. Now, you did the writings with Jim Butler, right, last year? Yeah? And you know that's the third segment of the Old Testament scriptures as the synagogue, as the Jewish community organizes it, because it, it constitutes the law and the prophets and the miscellaneous rest that you studied with uh, Jim, Right? Now there in Ecclesiasticus is a description uh, that corresponds pretty closely to that threefold description, Jewish, standard Jewish description of what we call the Old Testament. Many great teachings, have, uh, great teachings have been given to us through the law and the prophets and the others that followed them. Uh, the miscellany, as it were, that comes at the end. Uh, and then to Esdras, which is a writing from later on, from uh, what we call New Testament times, Um, is a a, a vision that allegedly Ezra had received, but it's actually something from much later on, uh, in which Ezra says, Make public the 24 books that you wrote first, and let the worthy and the unworthy read them. 
but keep the 70 that were written last in order to give them to the wise among your people. The 24 books um, are the books of the Old Testament scriptures. So uh, indications there in Jewish writings from what we would call just before New Testament times and just after New Testament times um, of their having a set of scriptures that is something like what we've got in the law, the prophets and the writings. You get the same sort of impression if you look at um, the kind of way that Jesus talks about scriptures and for that matter the kind of way that the, the, the rest of the New Testament talks about scriptures. That is, you get quotations from uh, all, all, those, all those three parts um, of the Old Testament, of the Torah, the prophets and the writings. You don't get them from every book. Um, so, it, uh, although it refers to Ruth, it never actually quotes from Ruth. It never quotes from Esther. There are various books it doesn't actually quote from. But all the segments um, of the uh, Old Testament, uh, the New Testament refers to. And uh, it doesn't refer to any of the books outside um, that nearly made it or that might have made it uh, into the canon, the, the deuterocanonical the, the books, the apocryphal books, about which I'll say something more in a minute. So if you were, had been in a position to say to Jesus, excuse me, which books are in the Bible? Well, I'm sure you know how when you ask Jesus some silly question, you get a silly answer, don't you? You know, you get, you've got to, he'd have turned the question back on you. But if you could pursue him, persecute him, come on, Jesus, tell me what's in the Bible, um, then what the Jewish community came to refer to as the Torah and the Prophets and the Writings is as near as we can get to knowing what that collection would have been. Um, if you look in a, te in, in a textbook, particularly older textbooks, about when they sorted out precisely what was in the Old Testament, these books will often refer to a thing called the Synod of Jamnia. Um, Jamnia is a place that's now, uh, that's the Latin name of a place that's, that's, uh, whose Hebrew name is Yavne, that's how you'd find it on a modern map near Tel Aviv. And the idea of um, the rabbis sorting out uh, the bounds of the Old Testament scriptures um, at Jamnia, Yavne, is a really great idea. The only trouble is there isn't the slightest piece of evidence for it. But the trouble with theologians, I'm sure psychologists aren't like this, is that we can't say we don't know. <laughs> Can you say we don't know? Oh, thank you. You've, oh, you've proved it. Yeah, well done. Yeah. But you work in the School of Theology office, so you're a kind of hybrid, aren't you? That's kind of, yeah, doesn't really count. Um, I guess you can say we don't know and we'll do a research project on it, can't you? So that's, that's kind of different. Um, but but scholars, Old Testament scholars have to have answers to things. Um, they, and if they haven't got an answer now, they always believe there'll be an answer tomorrow. Well, that's just like you, isn't it, really? Yeah. Uh, whereas there are questions to which we have to say we do not know. And in my opinion, that's the, that's the truth with regard to if there, if there was ever a moment when anybody said, okay, that's the Old Testament canon, we don't know when it was. I don't think there was a moment. Uh, I think it simply happened that they were adding um, books to their scriptures because they were grasped by them, and eventually they stopped doing that, and they never added any, never added any more. Um, but um, uh, I'm, um, that's a rogue view on my part. Um, and I, yes, I, would, I am viewed as peculiar. I would be viewed as peculiar for holding that view. The Synod of Jamnia theory is as follows. Uh, after the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, uh, that, that terminated uh, the position of people like the Sadducees, who were focused on the temple, 
um, and the Essenes who are focused at Qumran. Uh, and the only people who were kind of left were the Pharisees. The Pharisees became the Jewish community, became the centre of Judaism from then on. In New Testament times, there are various denominations. After the fall of Jerusalem, there's only one denomination. Uh, and so, the, but the thing that the Jewish community needs to do, and that the Pharisees take a lead in, um, is sorting out what's to be the nature and the basis of Jewish life, now that the temple has been destroyed. Now, uh, imagine what an earth-shattering and a faith-shattering question that is to have to handle. Particularly if you've lived in Jerusalem and you've been focused on the temple and the sacrifices are so important. And now there is no temple and sacrifices can't be offered. What is our relationship with God um, to work? How is that relationship with God to work? And to be slightly ironic about it, in effect, um, they came up, the, the Pharisees came up with an evangelical answer. They always believed in an evangelical answer. Because for the Pharisees, the really important thing was the scriptures. It was obeying the scriptures. And the great thing about the scriptures is they survive the fall of Jerusalem. So the next decades were a period of running theological discussions in this place called Yavne. Not a synod that just lasted for a week or something like that. Uh, but, but more like um, a kind of three or, four long, three or four year long theological retreat in which they discussed all sorts of questions. Um, and, and one of the questions, they did discuss some things about the status of some books um, in the scriptures. They discussed whether certain books defiled the hands. That was a kind of odd way to put it. Uh, but what it meant was, when you've held one of the, uh, a book of the scriptures, you've held something holy. And so afterwards, you kind of need to wash the holiness off your hands. It, the, the scriptures have kind of defiled your hands, or they've defiled them in an, in an inverted way. So uh, you better go and wash your hands afterwards, because you wouldn't like to be um, taking the holiness of the scriptures somewhere else and then defiling that. So when they were discussing which, whether certain books defiled the hands, they were in effect discussing whether they, whether they belonged in the scriptures. They also had some discussion about some books that uh, ha seem to have contradictions in them. Uh, and so on the, on the basis of those two, uh, 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 the, those two sorts of discussions about defiling the hands um, and of contradictions, they discussed whether Ezekiel and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes uh, and several other books that I can't remember really belonged in the scriptures. And it's those half a dozen passages in which they refer to that question that are the basis of the old theory that it was a Jamnia that the canon of the scriptures was sorted out. Um, but it's much more likely that these uh, rabbis, these ex-Pharisees, now rabbis, um, were discussing the status of the scriptures on the basis of the scriptures existing, than that they were now deciding what the, that the scriptures stood exist, that the scriptures stood should exist. So they were, their discussions were a bit like Luther's discussions. You probably know that um, that Luther was really disgusted with James. And didn't think much of three or four other books in the New Testament. And when he produced his translation of the Bible, he separated out James and Revelation and a couple of others, I can't remember what they are, at the end of the New Testament as a kind of second degree scriptures. Now, Luther wasn't doing that um, on the basis of the Bible not existing. He was doing that on the basis of the Bible existing and attempting to rethink uh, the, the status of some of the books there. And that seems to me to be more likely what the guys at Jamnia. We're doing. 
in Egypt by this time, uh, by, by, by New Testament times, uh, the scriptures had been translated into Greek because that was the language that intellectuals spoke. That's weird, isn't it? Um, and so translating the scriptures into Greek made them more accessible um, than Hebrew, which was a very minority language, um, to uh, European people, but also other people from the Middle East who didn't speak Hebrew. And so when Christians, uh, came, who, who, for whom Greek was the common language, came to use the scriptures, they naturally used them in Greek. Now, a complication was that there were lots of other Jewish religious books apart from the ones uh, in the Torah, the Prophets, and the Writings that had been translated into Greek. And uh, remember that in this time, you, there, isn't a thing like a, there isn't a thing like this that's a Bible. You can't go to a store and buy a Bible like this. Um, the uh, individual books of the Bible are all on scrolls. So you can certainly buy a scroll. I'd like to buy a scroll of Genesis, please. Oh, yes, fine. That'll cost you $45,000 or something like that. Uh, maybe a slight exaggeration, but it obviously takes a long time to copy it out by hand. So it's not a huge, not a huge exaggeration. Maybe 4500 I don't know. Um, but there's no such thing as a, as a Bible with it all there, with all, all between two covers. So another possibility, not if you ask Jesus what's in the Bible, but if you'd asked Peter or somebody, he probably wouldn't have known. Because he wouldn't understand the question. Because nobody's ever seen a Bible. There isn't such a thing as the Bible. His synagogue probably hasn't got a copy of all the scrolls. The temple's probably the only place you can be sure. That, that would, you'd have to go to the temple and say, excuse me, will you please show me your set of scriptures? Because I know that's the real thing. But poor old Peter is brought up in the, in the synagogue at Capernaum. They probably don't have a complete set of the scrolls. So, uh, but, but whereas these... Um, Jews um, and then Christians in Egypt um, have got other scrolls beyond the scriptural, beyond the actual Torah prophets and writings. So the early Christians um, seem to have got a bit confused, seem to be confused by the early Christians. I don't mean the New Testament guys. I mean after that, about what exactly uh, which Jewish writings really counted as the scriptures, uh, and uh, ended up working with a broader collection of scriptures than the ones in the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. Uh, uh, until the time of Jerome, uh, who decided it would be a good idea um, if the Christians um, went back to find out what the actual Old Testament said, as opposed to what the Greek translations of the Old Testament said, and that they ought to read the Old Testament in its original language. So he went to Bethlehem and um, stayed there and translated the Old Testament into um, Greek, um, I'm sorry, into, into Latin, uh, direct from the Hebrew itself. And, and he, as it were, discovered, oh, excuse me, these Jews say there's a lot less books in the Bible than we thought. Uh, facing the church with the question, did they, would, should they accept their collection of scriptures, this broader collection, or accept the Jewish, uh, the narrow Jewish collection? Um, and the difference between the two is the difference that um, in this NRSV of mine is the difference between what it calls uh, the Old Testament and what it calls the apocryphal or deuterocanonical books. Uh, they, the apocryphal is the old word for that. Deuterocanonical is more the kind of politically correct uh, word for them because they are canonical but only in a kind of second class way. They're deuterocanonical.
are a second canon of less authority than the first canon. The difference between them then, which became the difference between the Catholic churches, um, Catholic and Orthodox churches and the Protestant churches, is according to whether you reckon that we, that we should accept the books in the Old Testament that the church decided to accept, or whether we should accept the books of the, in the Old Testament that the Jewish community of which we are the children accepted. Uh, so as I put um, on the sheet there, the, the evangelical view is to accept the Jewish canon. The Catholic view is to accept the church's canon with the Apocrypha. The liberal view is to, ah, oh, why do we need a canon anyway? Um, which uh, formally doesn't usually mean that people want to abandon the existence of scriptures, but um, in substance means, that, means being free to decide whether or not you do like various parts of it and decide for yourself, in, in effect, what is your canon. Um, I'll talk about the New Testament in a minute, but maybe you'd like to talk with the people around you about the questions I've put uh, just below that, where it says, if you, got, if you could argue against the canonical position of any books of the Old Testament, which would they be and why? Which Old Testament books do you like least and would you like to throw out? If you were Luther and you could do something about it. Then it says, does it say similarly about any books of the New Testament? No, ignore that. Sorry, that's there by accident. That's there by mistake. Is it worrying that the development of the scriptures was a human process? Can we trust that God, can we trust that God ensured that it worked out okay? Which of those attitudes to the Old Testament canon, evangelical, Catholic, liberal, makes more sense? Talk to each other for a few, a few minutes about that. Sometimes. 